Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital-grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask. No Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. So we talked to Matt Rosenberg a while back on the Armstrong and Getty radio show, and we thought he was really, really damned interesting and thought we needed a longer conversation with him. Yep, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, covers national security, currently for the New York Times, spent 15 years as foreign correspondent in Asia, Africa, the Middle East. He was actually booted out of Afghanistan on the orders of President Hamid Karzai. Uh, has had a lot of really interesting experiences around the world, and it's a pleasure to talk to Matt Rosenberg. So I got a really broad question right off the bat, and then we can just you know follow different uh, lines based on the answer. We, the United States, have tried all these different things in a lot of countries that you've reported on over the years. We've we've tried killing a dictator and then leaving it to the people. We've tried overthrowing a country and trying to build a democracy. We've tried leaving it alone and letting them have elections. We've tried all these different things, none of which seem to have worked out that well for us. What do you think we ought to do? Yeah, uh, oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure and we have 25 many... different countries that we want yeah, to follow up yeah, with ex- yeah, exactly. specifically. <laughs> I'm sure there are PhD theses being written about this right now. I mean, I'm going to just I, I, I'm going to stay away from 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 projections, what we should do and, and just tell a little story about okay. um, when I was in Afghanistan, right before I got tossed from the place. 
you know, they had an election in 2014. It was going to be the first election in which Hamid Karzai had been the president since, you know, since the U.S. had kind of overthrown the Taliban, in which he was not going to be running. And so who was now going to run Afghanistan? And I remember talking to a few of our Afghan reporters who worked in the bureau with us, and they were like, oh, the U.S. has to stay. They have to help us pick who's going to be the new leader. And I said to them, I said, guys, look around. You know, y'all hate Karzai at this point. Y'all hate the people who were kind of brought into power by the U.S. Like, why in the world would you want us picking more people? We seem to not be very good at this. And we seem to be, you know, we're not naked colonialists like the British and French were in the 19th century. So we're not just appointing, finding leaders who will who do whatever we want and, and kind of rob their countries blind on behalf of us. We don't, But we don't really know these countries very well. I mean, I think, you know, take Afghanistan, for example, probably a, a housewife who, who speaks no English and in Afghanistan probably doesn't read because the literacy rate among women is so low. She probably knows more about Afghans than we ever will, most of us ever will. And so we end up selecting leaders that tend to serve their own personal self-interest very well and not much else. They don't serve their people that well. They don't serve us very well. Um, I don't know how we kind of get around that. Uh, I just know that, you know, between South Asia and Africa and elsewhere in the world, the countries that seem to thrive are the ones that build themselves and that have a sense of themselves. So you look at India. India is a great example of that. India, 1947, India becomes independent, and it says it's not going to be a client state of the West. It's not going to be a client state of the Soviet Union. And, you know, India today is a thriving country. Pakistan, on the other hand, you know, right next door, they were the same independent state, um, became a client state of the West. Pakistan is not a thriving country. I mean, there are a lot of variables in there, but there is some truth to that, too, that the Indians decided we are going to be our own country. We're going to be nobody's kind of uh, client, I guess. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. We're not going to have a master here. And it's worked out very well for them. Well, I think I, I get what you're saying, that with very, very ex- few exceptions, countries have to go through the very difficult decades of finding themselves, sorting out who they are and how they're going to uh, hand yeah. out power. And, and there's just no no imposing it from above. And, and I don't know how, how we kind of, like, you know, how we do that in large parts of the world. I mean, Africa never got that chance because of European colonialism. Let's be honest about this. The the West, Europe mostly, drew the borders of Africa. There was never any kind of sorting out of countries the way you had in Europe and Asia. Um, Europe spent a thousand years, two thousand years killing each other to get to where they are today. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not optimistic for countries that are struggling. It's, it's, it's a really long and bloody road. Well, should our bet just be whatever is best to try to counter Iran, as Iran wants to take over, you know, the, the whole Middle East, and they have been an enemy of the United States? I mean, we were counting on MBS to be on our side with that. Things have gone a little sideways there, but maybe he's still the horse to stick with. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the other question is, do, do we, does Iran need to be our enemy? I mean, I don't know, you know. Um, there are a lot of countries that we kind of put into one camp or the other that could probably be a little more negotiable with. Um, you know, and, and, and it's a tough call because countries are not going to do what we say. Um, and Iran certainly does a lot of things in the Middle East that, that, are, that are definitely not in the U.S. interest. But, you know, the Saudis aren't exactly doing great right now either. And, you know, killing a journalist in, in, in a foreign consulate of theirs is just one of, of many different things the Saudis have done that are making them into not a great bet right now. They've waged a brutal, terrible war 
in Yemen that even even the Secretary of Defense of the U.S. has, has got to end. You know, so we keep relying on these kind of actors that are far from positive. Right. Although within the region, I mean, you're presented with a series of unpalatable choices and MBS, you know, well, well, let's talk about him a little bit. He has absolutely instituted a few uh, pleasant, some might say cosmetic reforms. You can take your best gal to the movies tonight if you want. Um, but he, he snuffs journalists and consulates. Uh, what direction do you think he is planning to move Saudi Arabia? What's what's his act? You know, it's, it's so hard to tell right now. Look, he clearly has a modernizing streak, and he clearly has a very deep authoritarian streak. Um, it wasn't just the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. You know, he locked up a big chunk of the country's elite, tortured some of them when he took power. He has consolidated power ruthlessly. Um, he is young. He's in his 30s. And, you know, there are a lot of people in their 30s who who might not make the most mature and best leaders of any country. And I don't know the guy. I've never met him. But, you know, it's it's great loosening the restrictions on women. But there have been a lot of other things that should give everyone pause. Hey, do you think uh, uh, MBS, I want to I, I always want to call him MSB. Then I start thinking of uh, what's on the Chinese food. MSG, MSG, and then MSG, I get confused. MSG. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't get enough sleep. But um, <laughs> do you think MSB admires Thomas Jefferson more or Xi Jinping? Oh, God, I would have to go with the latter on that one. Right. Um, the man is clearly not a big advocate of democracy. Well, yeah, the, the modernized totalitarian state, you don't have to look very hard to find examples of that. That's kind of hot. Yeah, no, it's it's it, it, it's hot these days. Look, w- over and over again, there are in many different countries these people come to power who kind of supplant brutal dictators and are these kind of seen as benevolent despots of sorts. You know, in Uganda, you had Yari Museveni, who you had Idi Amin, and you had all kinds of violence and, and terrible rule. Then you get this guy who kind of stabilizes the place, and the place does well economically, and things are going up, but. That eventually does not kind of last, and the benevolent despot eventually just becomes a despot because you got to hold on to power. If you are an authoritarian or totalitarian state, at some point, your whole claim to power is coercive over your own people. You're not going to allow dissent. You're not going to allow um, any kind of wiggle room because you can't. And so it's very easy to go from being, you know, the good guy who's kind of fixing the country and forming it to the person who now is holding on to power at all costs and oppressing their people. Yeah, it's interesting. I always think about right after 9-11, I remember John McCain saying, what we have here is the, 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 the end of time when it's a good idea for the United States to make deals with dictators. Those days are gone. And I thought at the time, I thought, yes, it's going to be the end of all these evil dictators in the Middle East. But then you see Mubarak go and the people vote for the Muslim Brotherhood or Gaddafi falls and then you just have mayhem or, or, or what, what's going on in Syria. So I don't know what the right answer is now. No, neither do I. Um, I mean, I'm kind of, the, after many, many years overseas, I, I'm not quite sure we do as much good as we think we do in a lot of places. Um, I don't know how we do it better, um, but we can either often bring a heavy hand or when we decide to back certain people we don't know particularly well who they are and we end up backing people who turn out to be nasty nasty people um and you know look there are realists who would say well we should just do it in our self-interest and screw those other people so if we need to support a dictator we should support them 
I don't know if that doesn't come back to, to bite us in the, in the ass sometimes um, or often. Well, yeah, I think it's pretty clear, and I consider myself a real realist in terms of foreign policy. But, yeah, if you nakedly and without subtlety pursue your own interest, in the long term, that will go against your interests because everybody will hate you. Um, yeah. and, and on that note, let's go back to Afghanistan where you spent a great deal of time. How long were you there? God, I was so I was there a little bit in like 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, I was based in, in East Africa at the time, just kind of helping out, and um, I was a young reporter at the Associated Press. And then between like two, 2000, end of 2008 and 2014, kind of a big chunk of my time was spent in Afghanistan. The last three years of that, about 70% of it. Okay. So uh, true or no, how do you see it? We are engaged in a permanent... Um, semi-occupation of Afghanistan for the purpose of ensuring it doesn't fall into a, a, a Islamist hellhole, to have a balance against Iran in the region, to keep an eye on Pakistan. This isn't a war, it's an occupation. Um, I would say true in the sense that after 17 years, I don't know what else you call it, I, I don't think, you know, it's it's endless because it's we're not winning. Um and I don't think anybody envisions Afghanistan being a particularly good counterbalance to to anyone. It's a pretty weak country. Well, yeah, I mean, um, our presence but, there being a, hey, a remember, we're here. And it's definitely to keep the Taliban out of power. Um, you know, uh, the thing is, though, is that, we, like I said, we're not winning and nobody believes we are. It's It's a death by a thousand cut situation at this point, but it is something that we are slowly kind of being chipped away at. And it's unclear, you know, what the end game here is, what we believe the final result is going to be. Because, look, the Trump administration will say now, well, you know, we hold on, we provide assistance and support to the, to the, to the Afghan army and the Afghan police, and eventually the Taliban will come to the table. That has been the strategy for like seven or eight years now, and it has yet to yield anything. Um, except some very, very, very beginnings of peace talks that have been beginning now for about six years. So, so I'm not really clear on how this is a new strategy or where this one's going. Was Karzai a crook from the beginning, or did he just become a realist, or what went on there? No, I mean, he. I, I'm not even clear if he personally was a crook ever. People around him definitely were, though. What Karzai was was somebody who needed to stay in power. So when he came to power, it, a whole network of kind of warlords and kind of big men and others came to power with him, his entire support network. A lot of those people were supported initially by us, by the CIA and others. And, you know, early on in the Karzai presidency, that money that, that we were using to pay off different warlords and various actors was then sort of be route through Karzai. And then it just be, quickly became a situation where if you wanted to get any business done in the country, you know, anything you do, you had to go through the government. You had to go through somebody in power. You needed those connections. And I think that's like the classic mark of a kleptocracy is, you know, look, you know, we always had a deal in the U.S. Like you do your time in government, public service or as an elected official. And, um, and after you get out, you want to cash in. That's up to you. But in a kleptocracy is you are in power and you use your office to either enrich yourself or your friends and family. And for anybody to get any business done, they need your blessing because you control the kind of years of kind of getting the permits you need or whatever, you know. And that was what Afghanistan quickly became where I remember a guy, a DEA guy who was leading this big this big task force to go after Taliban finances. You know, they start to think in like 2009 when the kind of the surge was starting and the war was kind of becoming our focus again. So they fire up this, this big task force, and the idea they're going to go after like 
Taliban opium smuggling and other ways that Taliban make money. So these guys, they start they start listening and phone calls over the country, and it's they quickly realize like, uh oh, <laughs> like everybody's in business together. It's not just the Taliban; it's the government. It's people in the Hawalas, which are these kind of informal money transfer networks that made up most of the financial network. It's it's the ten percent of the kind of financial system that works in the banks in Afghanistan, um, that everybody's interlinked. It's all kind of a giant criminal enterprise. And here we are in the middle of it, kind of financing the whole thing. Um, you know, we built that. So whatever cars that became, we do bear some responsibility for that. Every regular person on planet Earth has always wanted the same thing for the most part. You want to you wanna raise your kids in a, in a safe place, and, and that's pretty much it. But where of all the places you've been was the closest thing to like the 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 pure Hobbesian nightmare of life is violent, brutish, short, that whole thing where there just was no law and order. Oh, that had to have been like parts of eastern Congo, parts of uh, of Sudan, you know, parts of Somalia where, you know, there either in Somalia you had no effective central government, there just wasn't one. And then in eastern Congo and parts of Sudan there just was the government had no authority over these places or was so distant that it could exercise no authority. And that if your neighbor or the neighboring village wanted to come up and kill everyone in your village and they were stronger, there was no real way to stop them. Um, you know, Well, that's some caveman sort of stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Africa is filled with incredibly weak states, countries that, that can barely control their own borders, um, that are terribly corrupt. That, you know, they're, like I said in the beginning of this, like, like I said, you know, these were countries that never got a chance to build themselves. Their borders were drawn by colonial powers. Some of them make absolutely no sense. Why they exist is, is, is simply because the diktats of, of, of European bureaucrats of the 19th century. And as a result, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, hobbled from the beginning and probably not getting any better anytime soon. You well, know, that's interesting. As long as we're in Africa and talking about that and, and as all of us are engaged in observing and discussing the growing tribalism in America and the partisanship, the rest of it, what what does an American make of the fragility of civilization and the way people who look and sound and worship virtually the same like the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda suddenly begin, well, not suddenly, but begin killing each other by the hundreds of thousands. What what lesson do we take as humanity from that? I mean, so leadership counts, you know. People people don't, I don't think I mean, you know, you, you don't blindly follow people, but if, if the messages you hear are frequent enough and loud enough to tell you that this other person, because they're Hutu or they're Muslim or they're Jewish or whatever they are, Tutsi, not Hutu, um, are, are somehow bad and need to go, um, that will become something that, that you will, people will begin to act on, you know, and I think you see that here in the U.S. when, you know, when you've got fringe elements moving to the mainstream and saying things about their rivals that are, you know, put them far beyond the pale of political rivals, that these people are enemies, that they are going to destroy our country, that they want to get elected to destroy your life. I mean, that's the kind of thing that tends to get people fired up, you know, and then you get the combination of, of the idea that you may one day, one day prosecute your political enemies or that if you get to power, you can get rich, you know, that's the kind of recipe you get where you start getting real election violence because the stakes get very high very quickly. God, you look at these places that are dysfunctional like you were just talking about, and you wonder how they ever get organized. Uh, uh, we ever got organized as a, as a species ever. 
into uh, into nation states that can govern ourselves and have some sort of security and decent life. We, geez, God dang it, we're so lucky that we've got it going here. I hope we don't blow it. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty grim. I mean, it's one of those things where I think you know we are so we are so lucky. Like so many things broke right over the last two two hundred plus years for the United States, but none of this is inevitable. Like this can all go away. Sure. Um, this doesn't have to exist the way it does. I think we all kind of assume like, hey, it's great, you know. Um, but it's very easy to f- remember that that you know people aren't totally rational actors. That you know people have prejudices. People have um, hang-ups. Some people are prone to violence. And that if you get leadership that's willing to kind of indulge that, you start getting down a pretty dark path pretty quickly. All right, let's head over to Russia. Vlad Putin is uh, gathering together his brain trust this afternoon, and and he's saying, all right, uh, the America file, what is our purpose there? What is What is Vlad Putin thinking about when he thinks about the U.S.? So I had a really, really interesting conversation with a person in the intelligence world. They just retired. Like This is, would have been the last few months. And they were a very senior person dealt with Russia. And so we were talking, and apparently there was this big debate in American kind of spy circles. Everybody has figured out that, that Putin has hung on to Trump and is into Trump because he thinks Trump can produce some kind of grand bargain. That while the rest of the Russian government looks at what the U.S. is doing and sees actual policies out of the Trump administration that are pretty hostile to Russia and says we're not... When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital-grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask, no Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doingourpart. What is a Fisher house? If I had a chance to talk to the Fisher family, I would start crying because I can't articulate how much it meant to us. The Fisher house is a comfort home for military and veteran families to stay in at no charge. Allowing the family to be together to support their loved one during a medical crisis. It's enough to help you thrive through these hard situations. Go to fisherhouse.org for more info and how you might help. That's fisherhouse.org anything done with the U.S., Putin still believes Trump can deliver some kind of grand bargain. But the big debate is, what is this grand bargain he wants? You know, and that they can't figure out. Is it over Crimea? Is it like spheres of influence, Crimea plus the Middle East, Ukraine? Nobody's entirely sure. Is it just respect? They don't really know. And until they can figure that one out, um, it's hard to say. Uh, The other problem the U.S. has right now in figuring this all out is that – a lot of uh, human intelligence sources, at least, have, have dried up because, look, if, if you're looking at the news in the last two years and you were somehow providing intelligence to, to the Americans, the CIA, do you think you'd keep doing it? I mean, you'd probably shut up real quick mm-hmm. and start avoiding it because, you know, you've got congressional committees talking about releasing, releasing the names of actual sources from the FBI and maybe even, even, even the CIA. You've got just the news. I mean, if I were like sitting in the Kremlin as somebody who was being paid off by a CIA guy to slip occasional secrets, I'd take the money I had and probably quit while I was ahead. Why? Why Putin don't play? Well, right. <laughs> Can you describe for folks who are not as hip to it as uh, you are the whole program of just weakening your adversary by uh, stoking internal uh, rifts and that sort of thing? Uh, that's got quite a history, doesn't it? Going back to the Soviet Union. 
It, it really does. I mean, you know, the Soviet Union used to always try this kind of supporting different groups in America they thought were divisive, whether it was like civil rights groups that they thought, well, if we, if we try and clandestinely support them, they'll divide America or right wing groups. You know, whenever they saw any kind of movement that had the ability to potentially divide the place, they would support it. But, you know, in like the 60s, a little bit of cash here and there and helping somebody print a pamphlet is not exactly going to create total amount of upheaval. Uh, we now live in a world where um, fake news and disinformation kind of moves a lot faster than we can keep up with it. And so the tools are now there to kind of do that, what they, the Soviets would have called active measures, I guess. Um, look, the other thing is Russia is a declining power. This is a country whose economy is pegged mostly to oil. It is, it is population is shrinking fast. This is a country that is not going to be a major power probably in the next century will fall off. And so they're doing what they can. They've modernized their military, but another thing they've picked up is like this information warfare. This helps, you know, you can weaken the U.S. But, you know, there is one important thing here, which is none of this works if we're not divided ourselves. You know, if we were in a different spot and we weren't so divided amongst each other, a bunch of, of secret Russian propaganda making it worse wouldn't have a lot of effect. It only, it only works because we're already kind of halfway there. Um, so that's, that's something to keep in mind. They got a lot of nuclear missiles, so Russia's worth paying attention to on some level. And obviously, yeah. we got China uh, uh, coming up to uh, challenge us as a global power. Do we spend way too much time worried about little sand countries in the Middle East? I certainly feels like it sometimes. So I always, I always have this sinking feeling. So I went from you know I was based in Delhi and covered kind of all of South Asia, and then. I kind of became our, our and this is I stole the Wall Street Journal, our Afghanistan, Pakistan guy, and then I joined the Times. And and I always had this sinking feeling that I'd gone from kind of covering like India and, and then and China, of course, like their reassertion of their place in the global economic order as these enormous wealthy countries, kind of like was like the rise of maritime Europe in the 1500s. You know, this this reshapes the arc of history. And this is the kind of thing there will be whole textbooks written about and kids will learn about in grade school. Whereas the war in Afghanistan felt like the Boer War was to the British Empire. Right, you know? right. Um, a little war in Southern Africa that kind of sorted itself out, and that's that. Um, I guess that's how we ended up with South Africa. But, you know, it didn't feel like, you know, something that was momentous. And so, yeah, yeah I think there's certainly a case. I mean, the Obama administration tried to do it, or at least they made lip service about doing it, about their pivot to Asia, mm-hmm. that we were spending way too much time on countries that ultimately, you know, weren't hugely important to us. Um you know, one other important distinction, I think, between Russia and China, because there's, there's, it's easy to conflate what the two are doing. Um, but this is this, a few intelligence people and other kind of strategist types people pointed this out to me. Like, the Chinese are seen as playing the game. So if they're listening to the president's phone calls, it's for espionage purposes. It's the kind of thing we do, too. You know, and that's, it's all in the game. You've got to live with it. What the Russians are seen doing is trying to kind of do that espionage and then use what they're learning to kind of screw with the actual institutions of our democracy and undermine them. And, and that's seen as kind of a step much further and an aggressive step. So if the Chinese are using the information and then trying to hearing, say they hear the president talk on this phone call, then they go to somebody and who, who knows somebody who's on that phone with the president and try and get them to kind of suggest pro-China policies, that's using our system for their own good. And the U.S. is kind of okay with that. They don't love it, but they got to live with it. Whereas, you know, the Russians coming in and trying to undermine the actual elections, that's seen as, as trying to break the system. 
You know, to that, uh, you mentioned the the phone call thing, which you wrote about uh, in the New York Times. Oh, uh, by the way, I heard the president mention that the New York Times is failing. I'm so sorry to hear that. That's, it's got to be very disappointing. Every time he does that, we get more subscribers. So I would really encourage him, please, please keep doing it. But so listen, um, you, you as a journalist these days working for the New York Times, um, you have a lot of people who want your ear, I would imagine. And a lot of people within the administration, maybe within, well, the administration broadly, say within the State Department. Joe's who, asking, who wrote the anonymous column? Who, <laughs> are you kidding? That seems <laughs> like 50 years ago. I, I don't care. tell you, but then I'd have to kill you all. So. Yeah, that's fine. Some days I'd yeah. welcome it. No, but anyway, so how, this is a journalism question. How difficult is it when you get a pretty well-placed source, you get the sense they got an axe to grind it sounds juicy, but it sounds kind of office gossipy. What's that process like working through that, deciding whether to uh, print it? All right. First of all, when you when you get a well placed source with an axe to grind, it's like thank God, like, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Number one, because they're going to talk. <laughs> That's always a good start. And then you know you you look at what they say, and there are some things people say. You're like this. This is highly improbable. Or you ask yourself, well, would they know this? And if the answer is yes, they go, okay, we got to find some other people who know it too. And you will find people who are then probably have less of an axe to grind or no axe to grind who know it and will help confirm it. So you get and the then, friend of a friend source pretty frequently, huh? Yeah. Uh, huh. And, you know, it's why when we use when we use anonymous sources, which Look, I hate it, and I think for readers, think most of them don't like it either. Unfortunately, in national security reporting, you got to do it. There's almost no way not to do it because so much stuff is either classified or restricted, and people will either lose their jobs or go to prison for talking to you. So you, you just can't get around it. Um, and so, but when we do that, we don't rely on single sources for stories. You know, somebody comes to me with an actor, Ryan, and tells me something that they absolutely have access to and absolutely sounds accurate, that's not good enough, you know, because it's one source and it's anonymous. We're going to do a lot of sourcing, a lot of multiple sources on that, especially if it's a truly incendiary story, you know, that's just going to raise the bar even higher. Interesting. Um, how much damage well, does well, it do? That said, that's what I like to say, a message to anybody in the government. Um, don't be intimidated. We always want more sources. Don't think what you've got is too minor. Please give us a call. You ever get stuff you think people shouldn't know this? People don't need to know this. Um, are you a uh, all the information? We deserve all the information. It's a democracy sort of guy. So I'm I'm a kind of I, I think I start with the benefit of the doubt. Like it it all should be public, and work backwards from there. And yeah. like we have definitely held stories um, or held information out of the paper either at the request of of the government, which has made a very good case that was not political about why this was important to keep to maintain a secret, or you know. If it's an identity of somebody that's going to get them killed, something like that, you know, that's something that we don't want to do. And so if we know the name of somebody and putting it in the newspaper is going to lead to their death, then we're not going to do that. You know, we're going to have a conversation about that. And on the other hand, like, look, I just said the thing about keeping information out of the paper. You know, more often than not, we will have either the CIA or the White House or whatever try and tell us, well, this thing is really secret. If you do this, it's going to ruin national security. And those arguments are usually overtly political and ignored. But there have been moments where they've come and said, look, you know, this is an active program. If you do this, it's going to undermine it. And we don't like, you know, that kind of thing outweighs the news value of it. Well, and there are some hints as to who a source might be or how a program operates that to the untrained eye wouldn't mean much. But uh, if you are, for instance, in the 
you know, Russian, uh, the modern equivalent of the KGB, and you're trying to figure out who's spilling secrets, man, a tiny little clue might be enough. So you do have to be careful with that stuff. We do. I, I mean, I think we also have to be realistic. Like, if we have figured it out, there aren't that many of us who cover this stuff at the Times. So if we have figured it out, let's assume that foreign spy services with lots of people probably figure it out, too. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So uh, who did you really admire as a journalist, writer, opinion writer? Any any heroes as a young lad? As a young lad, I don't know. I mean, I know now I look at some of the, the people I've either worked with or seen their work. You know, um, my former colleague Jim Risen was amazing, mm. is an amazing journalist. Um, uh, Cy Hirsch, you know, despite his more recent issues, I mean, this is a guy who dug up information that, that led to a huge amount of reform. Like, there's actual congressional oversight of the CIA and the NSA and others to the work that this one guy did. And that's yeah. pretty amazing. You know, that's an amazing impact. Um, you know, and I think part of me, I just appreciate people who, as they get older, don't decide, well, I'm going to be part of the establishment now, who keep throwing bombs. Right. Because, I mean, like, look, if I wanted to be part of the government, I would have joined the government. You know, if I wanted to throw spitballs, I became a journalist. So I don't see why that should be different at 55 um, or 25, you know, 25 or 55. You mentioned and, uh, you mentioned the CIA and, like, and, you know, they push back against if you want to print a story and all that sort of stuff. Do um, do those kind of institutions change much administration to administration or do they does the CIA tend to be the CIA, whether it's under Bush or Obama? And we'll leave Trump out of it because people get so worked up anytime you talk about Trump. But like is it Bush, bit, yeah. is Bush's CIA going to be the same as Obama's CIA and that they're going to protect the CIA? Yeah, they're going to protect the CIA. I mean, the difference is, is like, look, they're going to work for the guy who's the president. So um, whoever that is, they may change a bit, but they don't. I mean, the institutions are are set up like, look, we, we have set up a tremendous amount of institutions to be kind of perpetual as a as a somewhat a safeguard. You know, we cede power to them away from elected representatives and it provides continuity. The CIA is not going to go out and start doing crazy different things just because Trump is president. They're going to start spying on Americans, for instance. They can't do that. There are laws against that. Um, I think, you know, they might be pretty happy over at the CIA that Trump is, has loosened some of the restrictions on what they can do. I mean, there are certainly people who there who are very happy. There are plenty of other people who are totally unhappy that they think he, he is, has, you know, come in and said terrible things and undermined America's position in the world and made their jobs harder. Um, but it remains the CIA. I always ask people like you, and this is my final question, um, that, that have, you know, a privy to information that not all the, not all the rest of us are. Plus, you stared at it every single day. Is the average American citizen got a pretty good idea how scary the world is, or are we way off base, based on what you know? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, I, I know. So, I think the average American probably has is more afraid of the world than they should be, and doesn't realize what they should be afraid of. Often. Interesting. And that's not, it's not, it's not because, um, it's not because they're ignorant or stupid. It's just because, like, you know, you live in this very big country. You, you don't have to interact with the rest of the world very often if you're the average American. And, and you're pretty secure. You know, you know you can go to bed at night without somebody coming and kick down your door, steal your stuff or whatever. And that's a great thing. Like, I think it's, it's, it's We it's, underappreciate uh, that. Oh, please. Uh, in America. God, yeah, we really do. Thing. Oh, hell I mean, yeah. Most of the world, most of human history everywhere on the planet has had to go to bed every night worried somebody's going to come in and and kill them yeah. and their kids. Huh. No, it's great, and and I think we we I think it's, a, it's I actually think it's a good thing. Like our ignorance is a sign of our prosperity and success. 
in some ways. Um, I mean, it, it, we should all strive to be less ignorant all the time. And I even know that, you know, the one thing I learned, I spent 15 years living around the world, is, is how little I know about it. You know, I go to these places and I think I know something, but it's, it, like I said, uh, you know, a housewife in Congo or Afghanistan or wherever knows more about her own kind of part of the world than I ever will or any foreigner probably will. Um, but, you know, so, yeah, it, but, but, because, but because we know so little, we're very easy to scare about the rest of the world. You know, whether it's a migrant caravan of a few thousand people who are a thousand miles away and, you know, there's a big chunk of the country believes these guys are coming to kind of overrun the country or, you know, it's a small, small group of militants in the mountains of Pakistan and Afghanistan who did launch a very successful attack September 11th and have launched other attacks, but, but really do not pose any kind of existential threat to us. You know, I'm mostly and, afraid of shark attacks and killer clowns, though. Do I have it about right? <clears throat> yeah, no, me too. Um, <laughs> and I'm, 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 I'm afraid of airplanes too. I can't stand them. But I always figure the most dangerous thing we all did was drive. You know, oh, I yeah, drive every all day. The time. Oh, yeah. hey, yeah. or just crossing the street. I mean, that's how you get killed. You know, it's not. It's not in a terrorist attack. So listen, or, Matt, because, be because of a lot of our uh, listeners swing conservative, and I can hear him yeah. yelling at the podcast, I've also got to point out the idea that Trump is the new Hitler or women are yeah. going to be uh, forced to breed or he'll be an autocrat is ridiculous. It's yes, laughable. It he couldn't get a quarter of the way to first base um, yes. and become an autocrat. Look, I mean, uh, I, I, there's Trump derangement syndrome is definitely a thing. Um, and I think, you know, you've seen it in the last few years here. It's it's on the right and left. You've got to kind of fringe ideas moving to the middle, you know, and making that space where everybody can kind of chat and disagree, but kind of agree to kind of work together among their disagreements has made that much smaller. But I mean, Trump is what he is. You know, he's got his many flaws, but a new Hitler is a pretty big stretch. We talked know? to P.J. O'Rourke a couple of weeks ago, and he said, whose idea was it to make it so all the stupid people could talk to each other? <laughs> he was talking about the Internet. <laughs> I mean, look, it's, it's, it's definitely not a good thing. You know, I, I would prefer a president who, who, after a tragedy, gets up and talks about the tragedy. And I would include Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Reagan, all of them in that group, you know, over a president who doesn't. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely things you want different. But, I mean, new Hitler is – nobody's a new Hitler until they're new Hitler, and we're far from that point. Yeah, amen to that. Matthew Rosenberg. Hey, uh, Matt, it's great to talk to you. I hope it uh, won't be the last time, and, and, and let's stay in touch. Well done. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Our pleasure. Thank you. Good stuff. Um, God dang it. If you want to be thankful for anything on a, on a on a daily basis or thank your blessings, if you were born in the United States or you now live in the United States, that 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 should be at the top of your that should be one through ten at the top of your list. Oh, yeah. Well, and as we've discussed, that if you are safe and prosperous, you invent things to be worried about. Sure. Because your brain has that big part of it that's dedicated to warning you about stuff, and if there's little to warn you about, other than you know the guy looking at his cell phone in the next lane as you're driving. <laughs> Um, I'm worried about uh, killer killer clowns riding sharks toward me. Imagine the uh, the horror of that coming out of the edge of the woods. But some of those African places he's talking about where there's just no law. Oh, yeah. You'd be fighting for your life every single day trying to keep you and your family pr- protected. Oh, my God. Uh, being fully aware that much of Africa is desert and or savanna, it is the law of the jungle in that the strong will win the day, period. 
There's no such thing as, as, as that's not good for justice me. or I'm weedy. I'm, yeah, well, run for cover, or find some strong friends, or maybe I could amuse people. You know, like a court jester type. Well, I would amuse them for firearms and accumulate yeah. as many firearms and as much yeah. ammunition. He's as He's a can. tough guy with a machete. He keeps me around because I amuse him. <laughs> It's good work if you can get it, court jester. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, one thing I did want to point out, again, for our uh, listeners of a more conservative stripe, Matthew Rosenberg, he, he works for the New York Times. He's written some stories I'm fairly critical of um, and or the White House denied outright, and I don't know what to think. And, all. and a lot of you want us to argue with a guy like Matt about, you know, the New York Times and bias and the rest of it. And and we could, but I think that would be so predictable and it would go nowhere. I'm much more interested in hearing what he has uh, seen and learned in his years around, um, you know, Asia, Africa, the Middle East as a foreign correspondent. I, don't really, I just think that's a more interesting conversation. I don't really want to trade my life with anybody, but I'd, I'd like to have, you know, done a little of what he's done, be in some of these places around the world. S- yes. See it instead of just read about it. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Wouldn't be always wouldn't always be pleasant, I'm sure. No, plenty of sacrifices in that line of work. Well, yeah. And you'd see some god awful things you'd never forget. Yes. Yes, you would. Anyway. Next Hell time we'll talk to uh, next time let's talk to Phoebe from Friends. That's what I keep saying. Well, we tried that once. <laughs> That's right. It didn't work out very well, did it? <laughs> well, maybe if we had a longer time to stretch out and really talk to her. You really do it. get into So you Joey do it. was he stupid or Joey was stupid, yes. Anyway, see you next time. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital-grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask, no Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doingourpart. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.